Welcome. I'm Asa A, and this is The August Light, a podcast about my life as an actress and entrepreneur, which technically they're the same thing, but I digress. <laughs> Join me weekly for candid discussions about Black culture, growth, self-care, business, education, and a whole bunch of other sh- Oh, and I have a lot of amazing friends who'll be joining me in all my nonsense. There's no telling what will happen when the mic comes on, but I promise it'll be entertaining. So get comfy and enjoy the light, the August light. Today on the August Light Podcast, we have Drea back with us. And today we're speaking with her about autism and mood disorders. She has a bachelor's degree in psychology from Spelman College. She's trained in ABA, which is Applied Behavior Analysis, as a certified behavior technician. And she has experience working with kids with autism and mood disorders as a teacher. So we're going to go ahead and get this kicked off. You've been with me before, so you know how this goes. We're going to get right into these questions so that we can learn a little bit more about autism and mood disorders. Let's start off with you telling us, how did you become a behavior technician? What sparked that? So when I was in school at Spelman, I knew I wanted to go into psychology. I had always known I wanted to be active in my role in psychology. And so um, when I graduated, I started exploring, you know, how could I do this? And I actually stumbled into ABA. I wanted to work with kids. I had already had some experience working with people my age and younger. So I stumbled into a company in North Carolina that offered to help me train to eventually become a behavior technician. And so I started learning about ABA, which is Applied Behavioral Analysis, and learning how to do the data collection and learning how to interpret that data in order to help students grow and help help kids grow. And eventually became certified as a behavioral technician and started working with children as young as one and two and eventually working with people as old as 19 at that position and helping them modify their behavior. So we focused on behavior modification with what we were doing. Awesome. Awesome. That's a lot of background, ma'am. That brings me to my next question based off what you uh, did in that time frame. What is autism first? And what is a mood disorder? And also when you explain this, can you give us some of the behaviors associated with each of these? So when I describe autism to anyone, I usually go by what a former client of mine said. He was an eight-year-old boy when I first met him, and (laughs) I worked with him for like a year and a half. He was hilarious, but he would say, you know, well, I have autism, and that just means that my brain doesn't understand the world the same way everyone else's does. And because my brain doesn't understand the world that way, it makes me do or I choose to do certain things that other people don't see as normal. Which is brilliant because there are a lot of the things that all of us do that will be considered outside the norm sometimes. So it's not, not necessarily that different than anyone else. That's a good way of seeing it. Absolutely. And it was when he said that to me, I was like, oh, my gosh, what a profound statement, child. (laughs) And right. And then we went back. We were in the middle of a board game and we went back and he lost. 
And he proceeded to have a full on what a lot of people would term as a meltdown. (laughs) So that was his brain, not necessarily interpreting everything the same way everybody else would. And so a lot of times with autism, you'll see people have things like stimming behaviors. That's a, that's one of the signs that, you know, they need some self-stimulatory behavior. So, and by that, you know, that might be flapping, that might be you know, playing with something. I had one kid who always needed something to chew on. Those stimming behaviors, which is really just a behavior that a person does to stimulate themselves or to have stimulation to focus on instead of all of the things that their brain is trying to interpret. Mm -hmm. Because sometimes their brain, again, doesn't interpret them the same. So sometimes you'll see it as sensitivity to sound. So you might see children with autism have noise canceling headphones on at all times or when they're in large spaces. You might see them need extra tools to help them kind of control some of the visual stimulus that they're getting, some of the tactical or tactile stimuluses that they're getting. So a lot of times you'll see them have sensitivities to things like clothing. So A lot of the kids I worked with just could not deal with tags. Tags and clothing were the worst to them. Girl, tags are the worst to me, like as an adult. Like I Same. I hate tags. What? You know the worst tags? I like the um, ones from Forever 21's clothes. Like they have like these extremely long tags inside. They're long and they'll they're sometimes in odd places too for Forever 21. Yeah. And then so you have to go in there and literally cut them out. Because it's like, yeah. you're going to be itching the whole time if you don't. So they ain't the only ones. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Normal that's that not, my, nothing my, new. That's normal, in my opinion, you know. Right. <laughs> um, and then, same. Um, but <laughs> going along, like, mood disorders is something that is typically pretty comorbid. And by comorbid, I mean they occur at the same time you with autism a lot words. of times. Oh, oh, thank you. Oh, <laughs> Sometimes I know, no, but (laughs) a mood disorder is really just something that causes someone to be, to have trouble regulating emotions based on the stimuli they're getting. So one of the common mood disorders I often worked with with kids is they would have autism, but they would also have ODD, which is oppositional defiant disorder, where they had trouble regulating their mood when given instructions or when given regulations that they had to live by. And so, again, you would see what we would call maladaptive behaviors, which are just behaviors that are not necessarily conducive to the progress of that person. So, and let me be honest, everybody has maladaptive behaviors. Everybody. (laughs) Wait, wait. So like, what is your, I mean, I know you probably have a theory on what everyone should do. Like, like you told me once that you believe that everyone should have behavioral therapy. Explain that. Like, yeah. Oh, yeah. Adults, children, everybody. <laughs> everyone needs to learn better ways to regulate their behavior because that's all behavioral therapy is. It's better way learning better ways to regulate your behavior, because I tell you what, just because you're you're not used to seeing someone who has vocalizations or who has, you know, a meltdown when something that you would term simple happens. Okay, well, what do you do when you're in your car and someone cuts you off? I'm you sure you're probably screaming off. out. It's a maladaptive behavior. That's what it is. You go the fuck <laughs> Does that off. Help? I've seen people right. go the fuck off. They like either stay on the horn, they beat the uh, steering wheel. They they, right. they they lose their freaking mind when someone. It's not healthy. 
it's and not healthy look, i tell you that it's not <laughs> but in atlanta you know it happens and you know it pisses you off because people are here in atlanta but you know other places too but particularly in atlanta they'll <laughs> get over in front of you like not even a quarter of a car length in front of you and they'll not even use a blinker and it's right. like so did you not see me they deserve and- their house though so you know Sometimes they deserve it. I, and I don't care if it ain't right. Your maladaptive behaviors <laughs> make sense to you, okay? But, it makes sense to me, okay? <laughs> but, yes, but it's any behavior that stops you from being able to adapt to new or difficult situations. So, you know, you see a, in, a, in a different sense when people have to learn how to grieve and people don't know how to grieve properly, mm-hmm. usually they create some kind of like maladaptive behavior where they might start drinking excessively or they might start using drugs or something like that. It's still a maladaptive behavior. You just don't or most people don't necessarily look into it because they're not trained to look at the behavior. They just be like, I'm doing it and I don't I feel fine. <laughs> it feel good to me so I'm gonna keep doing it <laughs> right no it's not helpful people <laughs> it's not but look, look let's stop talking about folks <laughs> go look my at bad <laughs> okay. I mean, okay again I include me in all these situations I'm not lying to y'all <laughs> yeah we're human here we're human here right okay so often when talking about disorders there is this stigma and this complexity and this we dance around what to call disorders we as a society sometimes struggle with how to talk about it and growing up we probably had terms like retardation or special ed and now there are all these other terms for me and everyone what is the proper terminology to use to discuss people with disorders? And why do you think the way we phrase disorders is a constant moving target? So I'm going to hit the second one first and then talk about the way okay. the way we properly should term them. So the second part of that is why do we think that it's such a moving target? And the truth is that these disorders are very rarely named by the people who have them and the people who experience them. They're usually named by somebody who is observing them in some way or who is trying to understand what that experience might be like. And so we have to put things into categories and we say, all right, well, I see this behavior or I see this outcome every time when I see these kinds of people. And frankly, those behaviors can change just because humans adapt and what's acceptable changes and what's reinforced changes. So those things change. And the experience of those people can change based on who you're looking at or what kinds of people. So for a long time, these disorders were really only um, named after white people and white children and usually white males based on what they saw there. And so I love looking at ADHD. If you look Mm -hmm. at a male child with ADHD, it presents really differently from looking at a female child with ADHD. Usually it's not seen in the same ways or it's not as outwardly expressed in the same way, which Mm -hmm. is why a lot of women with ADHD don't get diagnosed until much later. It's a lot harder to catch ADHD early in a woman than it is in a man because all the symptoms were written for men. So the proper terms constantly change. So as of right now, a lot of people will say they're on the spectrum or they are a child with autism. And it really depends too on the families, right? Mm -hmm. And what they're comfortable saying. Some families are fine saying, I have an autistic child. Some families 
much prefer saying, I have a child with autism. Some families much prefer saying, I have a child on the spectrum. It's really about knowing them and asking. Ask them first. Don't assume. Okay. Before I get to my last question, if you do see someone with their child in public having like, I guess you would say a maladaptive behavior where they were having a moment, how do you help in those situations? Should you offer your help? So in those situations, if the parent needs help or if the person needs help, they will typically say something. But a lot of times, because, you know, I've had situations where I had, when I was working with a 19-year-old person, and they were bigger than me. He was a large boy. And (laughs) he's also a man. Like, he's a man. He's not a child. He's a man. He's a grown man. And so he's a grown man. He's 19. And so... You know, there was a situation where we were in the facility, but he got upset and he started pushing. And so for the people around us, they were like, are you okay to me? And it's like, no, I'm all right. I can handle this. But if it gets rougher, I need help. And it got to a point where he got rougher and I needed help. And I had another grown man step in to help me because I just couldn't get him physically under control, you know, if he decided to haul off and hit me. And that's okay. If it's a child, right, in those situations, a lot of times the parent has ways of dealing with their child. They already know what that child's maladaptive behaviors are, and they know some tactics to help de-escalate those situations. It's a a situation where you kind of have to manage it as best you can. And sometimes the best thing to sit, to do is say, hey, if you need help, I'm here to the person who was dealing with it, okay. not the person it's going through. And say, if you don't need help, I will step away. Just making sure that you're trying to help the person who is actively trying to help the situation, okay. not necessarily trying to help the child because you or that person, because you don't know that person and you don't know what could trigger them into exacerbating this situation or de-escalating this situation, gotcha. which, you know, a lot of times they're trying to de- de-escalate it. Okay. Yeah. But yeah. I've your been point in many a situation where somebody was like, you're not okay. I'm like, I- I've got this. Don't even worry about it. Me and this child are yoked up. We're good. And there have been plenty of times as well where I've been in a situation where I was like, I need help because we're not de-escalating. We're ramping up. Got it. Okay. So that brings me to my next question. Now, what should parents do to ensure they don't miss their child's neurological disorders? And why should they make sure their child is correctly diagnosed sooner rather than later? And then lastly, is it ever too late to be diagnosed? So a lot of pieces there. So I know, I know. We're, we're, we're taking piece by piece. <laughs> we're so, going so, to so, take piece we'll, by piece. Let's we'll go with the first <laughs> one. The first one is like, what should parents do to ensure they don't miss their child's neurological disorder? Let's start there. Right. So I earlier we were talking about like all the stigmas that go along with some neuro, neurological disorders, right? Mm-hmm. And so one of the first things you have to say is, or parents need to say is, it's okay if I check on this and it comes back that my child has a neurological disorder, because so often parents will say, well, I don't want to check on it. And realistically, it's because they don't want this to be the case for their child. And frankly, it's not about you. It's about making sure the child gets as much help as possible. 
Right. And as a good parent, you should always want to do the thing that's the, in the best interest of your child. And, and also it goes to that, the whole stigma thing. I get that there are these stigmas associated with neurological disorders and everything, but you have to educate yourself in order to remove those stigmas and know that it is okay for your child to be tested and find out if they are having any additional problems that everyone else doesn't have. Right. And it's never a bad idea to bring it up to your doctor. It's Mm -hmm. never a bad idea to say, I'm noticing this. Is this an issue to your doctor? If anybody Mm -hmm. ever dismisses you, if you ever get a doctor that dismisses your concerns without actually addressing them, you need to get a new doctor. Point blank period. A new doctor. Get a second opinion. Real quick. The moment someone dismisses your concerns, you need to seek additional help. Right. And don't think that just because one child experienced life differently, that this child is going to have that same experience. There are plenty of situations where one child is on the spectrum or one child has a neurological disorder or developmental delay and the rest of your children don't, right? right? To go to your other question, which is, you know, why should you make sure your child is correctly diagnosed sooner rather than later? Mm -hmm. It's because you will get resources and access to things to help that child from a young age. And the younger a child starts learning how to adapt, because that's what behavior modification is about. It's all about learning how to adapt. The younger they learn to do this, the more it sticks and the more capacity they have for it. We know that child in child development, that the younger a child is, the more they have the capacity to learn, to make sure that they are able to live as close to a quote unquote normal or as close to a beneficial life as they possibly can. Or just functioning in society, as people say. Right. And then is it ever too late? So I think I told you this. I've had someone who got diagnosed in their teens mm-hmm. and it was a rough experience for them and <laughs> they did not take it well. And at the same time that they got diagnosed, their doctor asked to test their parent, one of their parents, their father. And their father also got diagnosed at the same time that the child did. And if you thought the teen wasn't taking it well, Oh, baby, you should have seen the dad. (laughs) Grown-ass man. That's a grown-ass man that's probably in his 40s or late 30s, 40s. Late 30s, early 40s. Yeah. Easy. Easy. Like, that will send you on a spiral, a journey. It It took him on a journey. It took him (laughs) on a journey. We'll say a journey. It's going to take you on a journey. It's a journey. It's like re-self-discovery. Like Right. (laughs) And Don't nobody, want while, to twice. <laughs> nobody wants to do that. And while I won't say it was too late for him, he was stuck in a lot of his ways. He had learned how to manip- manipulate the world, never knowing he had this disorder, never knowing that he had this change within his brain function. And so because he had learned to manipulate, it became a lot harder for him to say, why do I need to change it? I'm doing just fine. You know, it's that TikTok where it's like, you know, don't talk about my child. My child's fine. And then cut to the child and it, and the child is somewhere dressing up like an elf and looking out the window longingly or something. It's not, it's not <laughs> that they're not fine. It's, that. it's just that you might have a few moments where you go, hmm, huh. you might have, huh. Yeah, huh. <laughs> you might start questioning a few things. You'd be like, okay. That don't, okay. that, that don't fit in the spectrum of what most would consider normal, but okay. Right. <laughs> we gonna let you live. Right. Um, <laughs> we gonna let you live. You don't want to, look, you don't want to change and see, you know, a possibly a better life or have a possibly better life. Then you know what? Hey, right. I'm not to tell you what to do. <laughs> right. 
So while I won't say it's too late, it's ever too late, I will say it becomes a lot harder. Okay. Now, so that leads us into, you know, our next segment here, where, oh God. <laughs> where we're going to do behavior therapy for everyday people. Okay. Jeez. So, you know, we know everyone can use a little behavior training, as Dre has said earlier. Uh, Absolutely. We all, can, <laughs> we all can learn to readjust some things in our lives, even as adults. So mm-hmm. we're going to give a few examples of how to do this and how you can, you know, just do a little behavior therapy or yourself. Or, or on you your talk, friends. Or on your friends. Or children. children <laughs> anybody. You know, we got a couple scenarios here. Right. So the first one is, you know. <laughs> We're going to call it communicating boundaries. All right. Yes. So me personally, boundaries with people, with friends, family has been, you know, I feel like I've always had good boundaries, but I'm really starting to reevaluate the boundaries because I am growing and doing more things in my life. There has been a shift in my life where I'm realizing that the boundaries that I once had, no, they no longer work for my current life. So right. uh, me personally, I've found that some people they really don't, I'm, I'm training, I'm starting to try to train people, but they don't really have the understanding of everything I might be dealing with and like mm-hmm. actually doing a check-in with me before they unload their problems or basically before they ask something of me. So right. for me, I feel like there needs to be something new where we mentioned earlier where the question of, do you have space for this? That's something that I need to start implementing with people. So they, before they do an ask of me, they ask that question to see if I have the capacity to deal with them. But I'm going to let Drea explain this a little more because she uses this in her everyday life more so than I do. I'm looking to start implementing this. So don't, yes. when I see this pop up, don't be surprised. Don't be surprised when, when she starts using it. So this is something that I've been using with my friends and I've implemented with my family as well for pretty much anything that I know could be cumbersome to them or in any time I need to rant or vent or anything. One of the first things I say is, do you have space for this? And now my friends, not even now, most of my friends also will say, hey, do you have space for me right now? I need to get something out. And some days it's a yes, of course I have space for you. And some days it's a, okay, here's the thing. I am doing four projects right now and I can have space for you, but not right now, right? I just don't have the space to or the capacity to deal with this. And in behavioral therapy, it's a good way to start by modeling the behavior, right? A lot of times parents do this all the time where they model a behavior for their kids. And then they say, now you do it. You, you can do this as an adult <laughs> as well, right? It doesn't right. stop. <laughs> so like, how would, how would you go about implementing this particular one with someone like who's new to it? How do you approach that conversation or what, or what do you do for yourself first to start getting people used to it before you approach it? Right. So one of the first things I always do is when I first meet somebody or when I'm first starting to notice that this is a problem, instead of saying, Hey, how are you doing? I say, Hey, what's your space like today? You know, and- what's your mental space like today? Instead. And sometimes they'll be like, oh, that's a different question. Oh, my mental space. I mean, it's pretty good. It's pretty clear. And sometimes it'd be like, oh, it's crowded as hell. Let me, you know, let me be honest. It's very crowded. And I'll go, oh, your mental space is crowded. I hate that for you. 
I have space in my mental space. Go ahead and let me know what's going on. Okay. Right? So you give, a, you so give they, it to them first. I give it to them first. I say, you know, so that they, one, recognize where their mental space is. And then I let them know I have space for this. So that they understand that it's not a matter of I don't have time for you. Or I don't want to talk to you. It's a matter of I don't have the capacity for this right now. It just becomes part of my everyday, hello, how are yous? Okay. Yeah, it changes the how are right? you. Okay. I like that. It okay. changes how are you. And the moment you start doing that, they start having to recognize for themselves and it becomes secondhand. And they start to understand, I have to be aware of this with this person. Okay, cool. You kind yes. of mentioned something when you were explaining this scenario. You were like, girl, right now I got four projects going on. And you were basically saying no, but you were explaining it. So I'm going to exactly. skip to a scenario, another topic of <laughs> behavior therapy. This one we title accepting no without a reason attached. Ooh, this is a hard this one. This is a word, okay? This is a hard one. Because some of y'all need to understand how to accept a no without a reason attached. Don't nobody owe you an right. explanation for why they don't want to do something, why they don't want to answer something, why they didn't do X, Y, and Z. Ain't nobody explain nothing to you unless they your child. They ain't your child. Please stop expecting any grown folks to explain to you their reasoning behind something. So I will tell you, back when I did behavioral therapy with children with autism or children on the spectrum, this was my favorite goal for them. Like, this was my <laughs> favorite target because it meant I got to say no all the time. All the time. Mm. No, because we, especially if we were at the point where we were trying to like generalize something to make it a very normal thing. Oh, baby. Can I have a rematch? No. Can I extend my timer? No. Hey, can you play with me? No. It was my favorite thing to do. <laughs> so like, for like, okay, now for us, us adults, how do we do this? Do we start modeling it by like, okay, someone asks us something, we don't want to do it? No. And then we just keep doing yes. it? Like, how do you implement that? So there's another situation where you can use gestural modeling for someone. So a lot of times the problem with accepting no without a reason attached, it's not necessarily because you don't know how to accept it. It's usually because most people in your life reinforce giving you a reason. Mm -hmm. when you have no. So the way you, we get people to accept no is by you saying no and leaving it there. And someone may say, well, why? And you can go, you can make a small gesture of like a, I don't know, gesture, or you can yeah, just say- Shrug your shoulders or just look at them. Just, shrug your shoulders, look at don't them. don't answer them again. Wave your hand, but don't answer them. Okay. Yeah, I said no, that's all it needs to be. Right. That's a no, it's a complete sentence. Full and complete sentence. Full and complete sentence. It's an, it's an answer. So, nope. so now we're going to go to two that are pretty fun. And I'm going to do these together because we call them behavioral modifications. And one, yes. um, one we're going to say is for kids. And we're going to say the other one is for adults. Even though they both probably came from, you know, children's perspective. But yeah. we made one for <laughs> adults, okay? So, <laughs> so the one for kids is where do shoes live? Okay. Right. And Dre's going to explain how that works. The one for adults is delaying self-gratification in relation to sex. So I'm going to hand that to Drea to handle both of those to see how you can use behavior modification in both of these scenarios. Right. And I <laughs> I, I'm telling you these things because I have a story for everything. Amen. I, you name it, I've dealt with it. <laughs> Ooh, behavioral therapy was wonderful. So with where does shoes live? So 
when I used to go into clients' homes and even, you know, with the child I live with now, um, (laughs) (laughs) shoes are a big thing. You know, a lot of times kids would take off shoes anywhere. I'm sure y'all have seen it if you got children where children just be like, shoes gone. I'm a free person now. And it's (laughs) like, like, okay, but they can't just be in the middle of my flow. And a lot of times what you hear is, get these shoes off the middle of my goddamn floor or whatever (laughs) from a parent once they've dealt with it for the hundredth time, right? But an easier way to redirect them is, hey, look at those shoes. They're off. Wonderful. Where do those shoes go? And the way we always start is I would start by saying, oh, look at the shoe home. I got a new shoe home. So say you got a rack in your house where your shoes live or say they live in a kid's closet, right? Mm -hmm. You introduce them with the idea of this is the shoes home. Shoes live here, right? So that they know it. And it's not just all of a sudden coming out of nowhere of, I don't know where the shoes go. It's like, no, 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 no. Shoes have homes. Just like we have homes, shoes have homes. (laughs) And then it becomes, okay, since the shoe has a home, the shoe is outside of its home. It doesn't want to be outside. If you're home, the shoe should be in its home too, right? If you're not home, guess where the shoes aren't? They're not at home either. Mm -hmm. So you need to say, where do the shoes live? Where do those shoes live? And usually it becomes a game of like, oh, the shoes have to go home. Yeah, they do. Take those shoes home (laughs) and reinforce it. And you can even do fun things with shoe homes. You can put a cute little sign up there that says this shoe's home or whatever to help redirect them without necessarily having to say it all the time to the point where you can get to, I just point to the shoe home sign to remind you. But now, yes. now on to the adult version, delaying self-gratification in relation to sex. Um, do you okay. want to tell them how this came? Quickly tell them how this one yes, came Yes, I'll tell them quickly. Okay. <laughs> so I used to have a client who is an older teenage boy, and he was discovering the joys of self-gratification. His his, yeah, his, his, his penis. penis. He was learning just how to deal with just his penis. And he was really excited about it to the point where he had learned that if he asked to go to the bathroom, he could go play with his penis nobody would follow him into the bathroom and it got to the point where like every five minutes he'd be like bathroom and you'd be like no man you don't need you just went to the bathroom you've had no liquids there's no reason you should be going to the bathroom at this point so he ended up getting put on a timer so that every 45 minutes he could go to the bathroom and do whatever he was gonna do in there (laughs) (laughs) so so now as adults how can this be useful for adults (laughs) and so A lot of times when we're dealing with adults, it's not necessarily self-gratification in terms of, you know, playing with your penis or, you know, diddling away. It's typically, (laughs) you know, dealing with sex and relationships and stuff like that, right? Being able to delay that gratification. You know, your girlfriend got a headache. You can't have sex now. Um, Like, she's not down. She's not down. She's having cramps. Okay. She's not feeling it. Or he's not feeling it. He's tired. He's been at work. Whatever the situation is. Somebody right. food. Okay. <laughs> Somebody not ready for it. So one of the good things to know is what is your threshold? How long does it take for you to go without sex before you're like, I can't take it no more. Some gotta give, right? right? Before you end up cheating or you, you know, end up doing something to possibly jeopardize that relationship. So it becomes a conversation with your partner of being like, look, I understand you might not be in the mood and I understand we have to be understanding of each other. But for my own sanity, it is best for me if I have sex this many times or this often. And it can be a window. You know, it could be every like 
week to two weeks, I need at least a little sugar, sugar in my life, you know? (laughs) (laughs) I need a little hump. Or else I'm going to start feeling unfulfilled, right? Right. Because that's one of the big reasons that people, you know, tend to cheat or tend to tend to have trouble within their relationships. They feel unfulfilled. So it becomes a thing of knowing how long you take to be unfulfilled. For this one, it was 45 minutes, but we didn't start at 45 minutes. We worked up to that. We started at like 15 minutes. Right. <laughs> Gotta be honest with this And kid. you got to build up to the tolerance of your, your requirements. You can't expect somebody to be not willing to have sex for a month and they used to having sex every day or every other day. You right. got to build that up for somebody. You got to be like, to all right, if you was used to doing it every day, all right, we move into every other day. Maybe we move into twice a week, right? Eventually right. move them out to that step, but don't go from we fucking like rabbits to we, we never fucking like nuns. <laughs> <laughs> nuns don't fuck with us who don't know. They're not doing it. Right. Those are two that's, extremes. That's too abrupt. <laughs> Don't be doing that to folks. People yeah. can't handle it. That's it when they start trouble. feeling unfulfilled. And then you over here like, well, I don't know why so-and-so cheated. Hey, I don't know. Well, if he told you his tolerance was at least twice a week right. and you have consistently been out here every three months. Right. Bebe. You can't be mad when he walk around the house with an attitude or she walk around the house with an attitude. Or they banging pots for no damn reason. <laughs> I ain't getting they, no sleep because of y'all. Right. Y'all not about to get no sleep because of me. Right. Like, you or can't. Up watching porn and you mad trying to figure out why they watching porn instead of wanting to be with you. Well, look at what you did to get to this situation. And then right. A, it takes two. It takes two. <laughs> it's a partnership. So, right. So you got to know how to work your way up so that you can change these behaviors to work for both of you, not just one of you. And likewise, if you know her tolerance is like once a month, you cannot be mad with her if she does not want to have sex every day or mad with him if he's not down every day. You might want to. You got to work down. (laughs) And this also will lead you to figure out if this person is the right person for you to be with. Because if y'all, if that's a deal breaker for you, end that shit. Don't even. Know that early. Yeah, get out early. Know (laughs) things early so that you don't be miserable and waste your time. And go through unnecessary drama in your life, okay? Exactly. Signs early. Know, know your no lines, okay? Know what right. does not work for you, okay? <laughs> in a relationship. Because right. if you know that you are prone to cheat, or if you know you are prone to hold grudges about stuff like this, this ain't the right place for you. Mm-mm. It's okay to be like, I'm going to modify my behavior all the way out of this relationship. Right. <laughs> modify your behavior so that you're no longer in that situation but right. <laughs> so now look don't expect miracles y'all don't be expecting things just to change overnight you gotta right. have it build a muscle recognize the problem and work on it they say it takes 21 days to build a habit if it takes at least 21 days to build a habit and that's for any of these things and that's consistent days give yourself grace so that you know it's okay to not complete something in the, the set timeline that you you said Give yourself the grace to know that you're going to make mistakes and it's not going to be perfect. But we can go on and on about ways to adjust your behavior for everyday people, everyday life. But before I go, these are simple things that you can find if you want to learn more about autism. There is a show on Netflix called Love on the Spectrum. Check it out. And then uh, Living with Lilac on Instagram. So check those things out. But I want to thank Drea for coming back and uh, talking with me about this. I think it is so useful. Until next time, y'all. 
Come back next week for another enlightening episode. If you were entertained or inspired by this show, tell someone about it. Listen and follow wherever you get your podcast. Leave a review about it somewhere, anywhere. And follow us on Instagram and Twitter at the August underscore light. Oh, and join our club, the August Light Talk on Clubhouse, where we will be hosting follow-up discussions.